Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Folks, it's going to be a long episode again this week. I can already tell. Uh, About a month ago, I started outlining these episodes to make sure that I covered everything. And in my mind, if I could keep the outline to a page, that was good for a roughly 30-minute episode. And y'all, I'm already at two pages, and technically it kind of bled over to three, but I condensed the uh, the font a little bit to fit everything on two. So I'm sitting here at the desk at the recording uh, booth, and I've got a red pen, and I basically check these things off as we go. So it's going to be a long episode. But before we get into the details of the past week, want to give you a couple uh, things to do. So if you're not already following us on Twitter please do so. We are at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. Pause the podcast. Go follow us. That's where we announce the new episodes. You can also always comment at our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. We also have um, some new stuff up at the Patreon page. That is Patreon.com slash Fisk, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash F-S-C-K. Uh, Last week, we put up a patron-only episode on canons of construction, so you can get a little bit of legal education there. By the time you listen to this, we should also have a PDF uh, outline of that particular episode, so you can actually have your legal education, your Law 140 to take with you. So definitely check that out. You can also comment there and join some of the other patrons in those discussions. If you are not already a subscriber, if you're one of the folks that just happens to listen to us on the website, make sure to subscribe because there should be a subscriber-only bonus episode coming out later this week. I can't guarantee that because work is always hectic, but we do have an outline put together for one of those. So make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play. Uh, We're pretty much all over the place at this point, but make sure that you subscribe just so you don't miss that particular episode. And if you like what you're hearing, please make sure to give us a rating on iTunes. We love the five-star ratings, but then also write a text review because that, I guess, part of iTunes is algorithms. That's part of your reviews factor into what people uh, find when they search for given terms. So your reviews actually help us out. More importantly, it gives me feedback so I kind of know what it is that you like, what you don't like, what I need to cover, what I need to work on. So that is the updates as far as the podcast goes. I'm taking my red pen and I'm marking through them. Um, Starting next week, not this episode, but next week, uh, we will have kind of spots within the podcast where I'm going to be mentioning some of our patrons because those folks have been helping to, uh, to keep this show running. So keep an ear out for those people. Follow them on Twitter when you hear their names because I owe them a debt of gratitude for this podcast continuing to exist. In the world of politics, this has been a, uh, a, a really just bizarre week, a lot of it involving foreign affairs. But as you'll recall from our last episode, that came out the day before Independence Day. And to celebrate the 4th of July itself, our great esteemed Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, uh, decided to have a presentation of a new song that his people had commissioned called Make America Great Again. Uh, here, have a listen.
So, of course, it goes on like that for another three, four minutes. And it was just kind of, it was weird for two reasons. One, of course, it's creepy. And then two, it conflicts with the official Donald Trump campaign song. I mean, on the creepiness side of it, I know we've had politicians take their campaign slogans and turn them into songs before. You know, I don't know if any of you ever watch old uh, campaign commercials on YouTube, but like Eisenhower had this entire song, We Like Ike, that took like five minutes. Like people had amazing attention spans back then, by the way. Uh, but I don't know that we've ever had a sitting president take a campaign slogan, turn it into this uh, Dear Leader-esque, oh, we love you, your speeches are so great, let's make America great again, blah, 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 and then play that on Independence Day. I mean, it's just weird. And then, of course, now you've got to figure out what is the official theme song for the Donald Trump campaign? What? What? Okay, so Mike is behind the glass. Basically, he is asking me, what what do I mean by the official Donald Trump theme song? They have one. Yes. I'm serious. No, it's the clip. Two at, go, so go to the Nikki Haley clip. Two clips after that. That's the one. Go, go ahead and play it now. Go ahead. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is the official theme song of our Cheeto-in-Chief, which makes sense because when you hear most Trump news stories, usually that's the soundtrack that happens to go on in your mind. Uh, but while that's been going on, Walter Schaub, the director of the Office of Government Ethics, ha, uh, he has resigned. So I don't know if they're going to ever have a replacement for him there. And then the big news story for the week was the, uh, the G20 summit. We've talked before about the disaster that was the G7 um, which is the seven largest economies. Well, the G20 is like the 20 largest economies because world leaders like having these fancy parties and talking amongst themselves. Uh, but it really was the G19 plus one uh, because Trump is incompetent and absolutely fails at foreign affairs. And there is a particular clip of a, a pundit from Australia with the Australia Broadcasting Corporation. Now, this guy's a conservative and his, his analysis of what has taken place um, is, is really devastating. So I'm going to give you the clip in its entirety. It's about two minutes long, but it's probably the most blunt assessment I've ever heard of a politician by a pundit. What we already knew, Barry, that the President of the United States has a particular skill set, that he's identified an illness in Western democracies, but he has no cure for it and seems intent on exploiting it. And we've also learned that he has no desire and no capacity to lead the world. The G20 became the G19 as it ended. On the Paris Climate Accords, the US was left isolated and friendless. But given that that was always going to happen, a deft president would have found an issue around which he could rally most of the leaders. And he had the perfect one, North Korea's missile tests. So where was the G20 statement condemning North Korea, which would have put pressure on China and Russia? Other leaders expected it. They were prepared to back it, but it never came. There's a tendency among some hopeful souls to confuse the speeches written for Trump with the thoughts of the man himself. He did make some interesting scripted observations in Poland about defending the values of the West and he's in a unique position. He's the one man who has the power to do something about it. 
But it's the unscripted Trump that's real, a man who barks out bile in 140 characters, who wastes his precious days as president at war with the West's institutions like the judiciary, independent government agencies and the free press. He was an uneasy, lonely, awkward figure at this gathering and you got the strong sense that some of the leaders are trying to find the best way to work around him. Donald Trump's a man who craves power because it burnishes his celebrity. To be constantly talking and talked about is all that really matters. And there is no value placed on the meaning of words. So what's said one day can be discarded the next. So what did we learn? We learned that Donald Trump has pressed fast forward on the decline of the United States as a global leader. He managed to isolate his nation, to confuse and alienate his allies and to diminish America. He will cede that power to China and Russia two authoritarian states that will forge a very different set of rules for the 21st century. Some will cheer the decline of America, but I think we'll miss it when it's gone. And that's the biggest threat to the values of the West, which he claims to hold so dear. Damn. I mean, damn. No desire and no capacity to lead. Uh, we're going to miss America as a leader when it's gone. Like, that was just, that's harsh. And, you know, in my mind... My natural American reaction is to go, hey, fuck you. You live in a penal colony with a monarch. You're no one to be lecturing anyone else. But when you listen to it, I mean, I, I can't really, there's not a whole hell of a lot I can say to disagree with him. He's got a point. And that really was kind of the, how the week went. I mean, the, the president accomplished nothing. The most he got was a supposed uh, discussion with Russia at some point. And he gave a speech in Poland, you know, and that's something that's another one. So a lot of people have talked about this speech in Warsaw prior to the start of the G20 or in the middle of the G20. I don't remember when it was uh, because there's just been so much political news going on. But everyone had kind of different perspectives on it based on their pre-assessment. And you have this, this constant thing where the Republicans go, oh, he was so great, such a good president. And I personally hated the speech. And and part of it, I can go into detail. There have been other folks on Twitter that have done a better job dissecting it. But let me give you just a teeny taste of that Warsaw speech and part of how it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Americans, Poles, and nations of Europe value individual freedom and sovereignty. We must work together to confront forces, whether they come from inside or out, from the south or the east, that threaten over time to undermine these values and to erase the bonds of culture, faith, and tradition. So did you catch the reference in that clip? What is the South? You know, I grew up as a Reagan baby, so I'm accustomed to this whole East versus West dichotomy between the United States and the Soviet Union. And say what you want about Reagan or W or hell, even Obama, they had this coherent vision in that the notion of liberty was something that we're all born with. We have a God-given right to liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's in our declaration. And their foreign affairs, you know, regardless of whether you like or dislike the stuff that they did, was rooted in this notion that you allow people to be liberated in contrast to kind of this Trump-esque notion of you know, Europe has our heritage and our traditions and everyone else is inferior to that and can never, ever hope to accomplish it. You know, and that really, that reference to the South kind of is the giveaway because he's not talking about Australia. You know, clearly he's talking about Hispanic folks in Latin America and black people in Africa. You know, otherwise there's no one else in the South to be referring to. And it's that type of, you know, embedded racism that is embodied by 
this apricot authoritarian. And it's fucking disgusting. It is grotesque to have the leader of the free world, the president of the United States, going abroad and talking about this sort of shit. You know what I mean? So that was the start of this whole G20 thing. He then went and accomplished absolutely nothing, as you heard from the gentleman from Australia. And his highlight was this whole discussion of whether or not the Russians hacked the election. And I'm going to give you two clips back to back. One is the United Nations ambassador, Nikki Haley, and then the next one is going to be the president himself. Everybody knows that Russia meddled in our elections. Everybody knows that they're not just meddling in the United States elections. They're doing this across um, multiple continents, and they're doing this in a way that they're trying to cause chaos. So that was our United Nations ambassador appointed by this guy. I think it was Russia, but I think it was probably other people and or countries. And I see nothing wrong with that statement. Uh, nobody really knows. Nobody really knows for sure. I mean, really what they should have done is just taken the interview with Nikki Haley and dubbed it over with this. So then, of course, the president's not going to stay off of Twitter. He ended up tweeting out that he was going to develop a cybersecurity unit. So his tweet says, quote, Putin and I discussed forming an impenetrable cybersecurity unit so that election hacking and many other negative things will be guarded. So this came out at 4.50 a.m. on uh, Sunday morning. And of course, everyone kind of goes apeshit because out of all the people to form a cybersecurity unit with, the Soviet Union, probably not the smartest play there. Uh, and then later that afternoon, the New York Times has a great expose where apparently Paul Manafort and uh, the kid, what's his name, uh, Jared Kushner, uh, the son-in-law to the president, had amended their disclosure forms to indicate that they actually had, in fact, met with Russians during the campaign. And Donald Trump Jr. admitted that not only did they meet with them, but they met with them for campaign purposes because a female attorney from Russia claimed to have information on Hillary Clinton. So all of these stories really are just spiraling out of control. The latest uh, pushback as we're recording is they're claiming that it's the Democrats' fault that these guys met with the Russians during the campaign. It's just the weirdest fucking thing in the world. It makes absolutely no sense. And this is your government at work. So as fun as politics is, let's talk about some judicial decisions. We've got some good news out of the Third Circuit. The right to record police is now actually acknowledged in the Third Circuit as well. In the case of Richard Fields versus the city of Philadelphia, uh, essentially the police retaliated against him for taking pictures of them conducting their business uh, out in the plain view. Um, and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals said that that was against the law. Um, the court said among their opinions, quote, every circuit court of appeals to address this issue, the first, the fifth, the seventh, the ninth, and the eleventh, has held that there is a First Amendment right to record police activity in public. Today, we join this growing consensus. Simply put, the First Amendment protects the act of photographing, filming, or otherwise recording police officers conducting their official duties in public. 
Now, the interesting part of this case, which is kind of highlights some of the fuckery that judges go through to protect police officers, is that even though they recognized that there's a First Amendment right to record police, they ended up throwing out the suit anyway, finding that the police had what's called qualified immunity that we've talked about before, because the right to record police was not, quote, clearly established in the Third Circuit. And it's one of those things where it's really fucking weird because you have so many circuits that are recognizing that this is a constitutional right. There hits a certain point where you've got to acknowledge that that is the law until another circuit holds otherwise that you do not have a right to record police. That is the state of the constitutional law that you can do so. And one of the judges, uh, Judge Nygaard, wrote a it's a concurrence and a dissent. So he concurs on the right to record, but dissents on the qualified immunity piece. And his uh, his it's concurrence is spot on. I mean, he notes that the city of Philadelphia had actually adopted as part of their police policy uh, an acknowledgement that people have the right to record police. Um, so he he concludes it by saying, "quote As I noted above." I concur with the majority's analysis and conclusions regarding the existence of a First Amendment right to record and agree that the case against the city of Philadelphia should be remanded for further proceedings. However, in light of the social, cultural, and legal context in which this case arose, I am convinced that no reasonable officer could have denied at the time of the incidents underlying these cases that efforts to prevent people from recording their activities infringed rights guaranteed by the First Amendment." It's, it's one of those things where it should be so incredibly obvious, and yet still, judges go out of their way to try and ensure that individual police and wholesale departments aren't held responsible for their constitutional violations. Uh, here in the Fourth Circuit, governing North Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals has dismissed a case challenging our Senate Bill 2 law. Uh, this is something that was passed back in 2015 in response to Uh, the United States Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage. And what it does is it enables magistrates to essentially claim they have a sincerely held religious objection and therefore don't have to perform weddings of gay people. Uh, It's a patently ridiculous law that essentially allows taxpayer-funded politicians to not do their job and hide behind these supposed sincerely held Mm -hmm. religious beliefs that you don't get to have if you're going to sit here and take taxpayer money. I mean, becoming a public servant, you have certain rights that you get to keep, but the fact of the matter is when you accept a job to work for the public, you have to carry out the laws that are there for the public. You don't get to pick and choose based on what you claim is your faith. Uh, So folks sued, but uh, the people who sued are not folks that were actually affected. So one of the couples was already married. uh, One of the couples was only engaged to be married. No one alleged that they were actually affected by the law. They were alleging what is called taxpayer standing. And if you might recall from our podcast a couple weeks ago, we generally don't have taxpayer standing in the United States. So I'm going to link this decision in the show notes, but it gives you a good walkthrough of what we talked about in that Law 140 segment of the evolution of taxpayer standing and how it generally doesn't exist, that the federal courts can only consider cases or controversies. And to do that, you have to have an actual injury. Uh, In the world of district court decisions, there's one of these cases out in West Virginia where Mother Jones is practically wetting itself about how great this opinion is because a trial judge rejected a plea deal 
for a guy who is accused of dealing drugs and said that he's rejecting the plea deal because it's not in the public interest. And part of his opinion includes an Excel spreadsheet where he's showing the number of trials going down over time, even as the total number of U.S. attorneys has gone up. And this has been hailed as some great, amazing thing uh, because it shows that the reason trials are going down is not because of the fact that attorneys are overworked, theoretically. Um, and it's just, it kills me. I'm going to link this decision because he goes to great length. I know this guy's got to be aiming for an appointment to an appellate panel or something because he really does go over the top with the opinion. Uh, but Mother Jones is like, oh, this is so wonderful because this proves that attorneys suck. No, what it proves is that now you have a judge interfering in a plea agreement between the U.S. attorney and a criminal defense attorney, forcing this case to go to trial, forcing the public to spend money to have that trial take place. And in the end, you're probably going to have a more harsh result than is justified by the circumstances. Now, look, I complain all the time that so many cases get pled out and that becomes a hazard where you have police who are overcharged charging and putting so much power in the hands of your district attorneys. But the fact is, if you've got someone who's guilty, then it's okay for them to take a deal. You know, you save the time and expense on both sides, both for the person who's accused having to spend money or having their public defender spend money and for the prosecution going through the hassle of actually calling witnesses, having people take off work to sit on a jury, going through all of that. You know, so having this activist judge in West Virginia uh, reject the plea because he's trying to make a name for himself, throwing a chart into his opinion uh, is absurd. But I'll include it in the show notes so you can take a look at it and judge for yourself. In state court news down in Florida, uh, the Florida Supreme Court – uh, sorry, not the Supreme Court. One of the judges in Florida has struck down an amendment to that state's stand your ground law. Uh, I'm not getting into too much detail on that. The only reason why I'm bringing it up is because it's one of those scenarios where the reporting on the decision – has totally fucked up what has actually happened, and it bears no relation to what the judge's decision actually is. So Florida's a little weird. In their constitution, it expressly gives certain lawmaking power to the judicial branch. The legislature focuses on substantive law. The judiciary focuses on procedural law. I, I talked a little bit about how that works in the federal context with the Rules Enabling Act in last week's Law 140. Um, but in the state context for Florida, that's an inherent power of the judiciary as opposed to being something the legislature has delegated. Well, under this stand your ground law, the legislature back in May changed the procedure to shift the burden of proving whether or not someone was entitled to claim self-defense. Uh, previously, it had been the defense had to prove that they had a self-defense justification. That law shifted it to being the prosecution because in their minds that was a way of, of filling out the intent of the law because it doesn't make any sense if the law is designed to protect people who are defending themselves uh, typically, the state bears the burden of proof on everything. We talked about that as well with the concept of affirmative defenses. So this particular judge struck down that particular change that has only been in effect for about two months, saying that that infringed on the rights of the Florida judiciary to exercise power when it comes to procedure. So, of course, that got completely fucked up in the reporting. Uh, folks are like, oh, you know, however many years after... 
Trayvon Martin was murdered, a judge has struck down the law as unconstitutional. No, that's not what happened. The law is still in place. The law is still constitutional. A slight amendment to the law was found to violate the Florida state constitution, infringing on the power of the judiciary. So let's talk a bit about these police brutality cases. And we're going to start in Louisiana because there's another scenario where how things have happened and how they've been reported have been completely and totally fucked up. Uh, so down in Mamu, I guess it's pronounced Mamu, I could be wrong, uh, but a young man named Dewan Guillory, God, I'm doing terrible with names today, uh, Dewan Guillory has been executed by police in Mamu, Louisiana. And this just happened a couple days ago, so I'm not going to get into too much details about the circumstances because they're still being investigated. The gist of it appears to be that he was shot in the back while he was on the ground uh, being detained for some reason, was unarmed, shot anyway. Um, but what was fascinating was that when the story first broke and then the string of news stories that happened afterwards, I happened to be on Twitter. And I saw in real time how stuff got completely fucked up as it went along. And I'm not going to go through all what happened. What I'm going to do is I'm, there's a, a story from The Root uh, by a reporter named Michael Harriot. And he's actually already covered what I was thinking. This was really fucking bizarre. Um, but essentially what happened was you went from a scenario where it was reported that the guy had been killed to there was a statement released that police were responding to a burglary, to the guy that was killed became the burglary suspect, to the guy that was killed was the actual burglar, and then his girlfriend tried to murder the police officer. Like, you have a bunch of news stories that have continued to morph this story on and on and on, and it doesn't match at all the actual statement from police at the time, which was... An officer was already on scene responding to a burglary call. DeWine Guillory came up completely unrelated. There was an altercation and Guillory was killed. That's all the police have said. But a lot of people have just kind of made some assumptions in the media about what has transpired. And Harriot does a really good job in this story of chronicling uh, how fucked up all of that is. And he actually checks news story to news story to news story and the changes that happened over time. Uh, so definitely read that piece. Keep an eye on that story. It's still developing. Uh, like I said, the gist of it is that the officer himself is not going to be questioned for at least 30 days under Louisiana law. Um, but based on the information that we've got so far from the attorneys working on the case, uh, Guillory was face down on the ground, unarmed and shot in the back anyway, because that's apparently how they roll in Louisiana. Um, let's do this. We're going to try and go counterclockwise around the country because there's an awful lot of fuckery going on in the world today. Uh, in Florida, Florida, you are next on the list. A Lantana police officer, Christopher Decker, uh, has pleaded guilty to sending porn to a pair of 16-year-old boys because uh, apparently that's how they do on the police force down there. The Jacksonville police have been exposed as unlawfully accessing uh, their database of all of your information. They call it DAVID. The acronym stands for Driver and Vehicle Information Database. Essentially what happened was that a particular public records activist named Jeff Gray submitted a FOIA request for information on when they had looked at him, 
and they found out that multiple units had accessed his information more than 200 times, including folks with uh, the state, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and Secret Service. And then the news folks that were investigating said, okay, well, let's go ahead and submit requests uh, for our particular reporters. And they found out that several of their reporters had been improperly accessed by multiple people repeatedly. It's really creepy as hell. So when you think about stuff like this uh, voter integrity project where the federal government is trying to compile all of this information into one centralized database and people are flipping shit about it, it's justifiably so because even state-level databases are getting abused on the regular by people trying to look up girlfriends and people that want to try and hold them accountable. And it really is just kind of a mess. Um, Speaking of messes, and we're going to talk about this in the Law 140 segment, um, the Palm Beach Gardens police have issued a statement saying that Venus Williams was not, in fact, responsible for a car accident that killed somebody. Uh, We'll go into a little bit more detail with that later on, but essentially the police fucked up there again, publicly smeared this woman for weeks, saying that she was responsible for killing a guy in his 70s, and then came out with a uh, statement this week saying, oops, sorry, we actually found more video, we were wrong, so sorry, please forgive us, lol. Uh, but again, that's par for the course. Also in Jacksonville, there's a uh, expose done by the Florida Times Union talking about not just abusing the David system, but also their aggressive use of facial recognition technology uh, to try and determine who suspects are and piece them together with crimes. Uh, this is really particularly freaky as well, creepy if you will, uh, but we'll include that story in the show notes also. Up in Georgia, Georgia, you are next. Uh, The Walton County Sheriff, Joe Chapman, uh, got into a bar fight in Florida with another deputy. Uh, Basically, him and the deputy beat the shit out of two guys they were playing pool with for money. Kept that information hidden from the state of Georgia for 16 months. Uh, Georgia has a law where if you're charged with a crime and you're part of law enforcement, you have to self-report. The sheriff just decided not to do that, hid that information for more than a year, And when this came out, the funny part isn't the fact that he successfully hid that information for more than a year. It's the fact that the fight happened near his vacation home in Florida. Like, how much is Georgia paying their law enforcement that you've got a Florida vacation home? Yikes. Uh, But yeah, so that guy has been uh, breaking the law and hiding it from people. Uh, Here in North Carolina, uh, my home county of Durham, a state report looked into the suicide death of Eunice Fennell, who was a uh, kid in jail. Uh, essentially, she was the driver uh, driving some guys home from a party. The guy started shooting, so she got charged with uh, murder for being the getaway driver, essentially. Um, and the main takeaway from that report is that the folks in the Durham jail lied. They told the public and told investigators initially that they had done everything they were supposed to do. They checked on her regularly. They responded to concerns about her being a suicide threat. And the report came out, found out that was not the case. They didn't check on her. They didn't address the fact that she was likely going to kill herself. Uh, and she died because of it. So uh, even here in Durham with people I work with regularly and like a lot, come to find out that there are people in the Durham County Sheriff's Office who just aren't being honest with the public. Uh, out in Charlotte, the Charlotte District Attorney has continued his tradition of refusing to charge police when they kill people. Uh, police have been cleared in the extrajudicial summary execution of Irislav Mosiek. Uh, he is an immigrant who was having a mental health episode Uh, His sister called police, 
said that he was looking for the sister's uh, boyfriend's gun. It was a rifle, but that part of the rifle had been detached and stored elsewhere so that the rifle was non-functional. Officers showed up, saw that this guy had the rifle. The sister is telling them the same thing she told the 911 dispatch, that the gun does not work. Doesn't matter. They shot the guy in the back anyway. He died. And the district attorney has declined to prosecute. Now, that's not unusual because this particular district attorney in Charlotte, a guy named Andrew Murray, uh, he's trying to become a United States attorney. He's trying to get an appointment from uh, Trump. And Trump is not going to appoint someone to a United States attorney position if they're actually trying to hold police accountable. The Jeff Sessions Justice Department is not going to have anything of that. Uh, So just like the Keith Scott killing a few months ago, uh, this killing of Mosiek now, the killing of the uh, the deaf guy, Daniel Harris. No one's going to get charged because that's just how our system is currently set up. Everybody in the government protects everybody else in the government. That's just kind of how it works. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and maybe one of us will get appointed United States attorney. Uh, also out in Charlotte, you might recall from our uh, podcast a couple weeks back, we mentioned a Charlotte woman who had a gun pulled on uh, her by a Tennessee officer. The woman had bought an SUV from that officer's mother-in-law, shows up to retrieve the vehicle, goes to put a license plate on. The officer comes across the street with his gun out and is cleared of any wrongdoing. Tanya Jameson is the lady's name. Uh, she wrote a letter to the editor, both of the Charlotte Observer and the uh, paper in Knoxville. I'm going to go ahead and link that to you in the show notes. But it really does kind of hit home how screwed up the mentality is among police. And Tanya really brings that to light. Uh, one of the excerpts from her letter is, quote, Chief Rausch said that when investigating complaints, it is essential to understand an officer's mindset to determine the facts. A mindset is not a fact. She also goes on, I don't have de-escalation training. I'm the one being held at gunpoint. I'm the one thinking my life could end if he panics, yet I'm the one expected to remain calm. Uh, she really does just go in, and it's it's so on point. Like, it's absolutely correct. Our entire system is so fucked up when it comes to civilian interaction with police. Uh, so I'm going to link that letter in the show notes and encourage you to read it. So that is North Carolina. Up in New York, uh, a district attorney, Darcel Clark, charged Sergeant Hugh Barry with murder for him killing somebody, which that's rare enough as it is. Uh, And in retaliation, the police union has put up a YouTube video at length, uh, basically smearing this woman and trying to destroy her life. So if you ever wonder why, out of all of the DAs, there's a very strong incentive to not prosecute police, um, there are a lot of different reinforcing factors for that, but one of them also is that the police unions will go after you and try and make sure that you uh, don't work again. Uh, over in Kentucky, the whole counter going counterclockwise around the country part is going to be a bit of a challenge as we go through the Midwest. But let's go next to Kentucky, where an inmate was actually left in the courthouse overnight. James Thomas Adkins was brought over for a uh, hearing. And the deputies that were dealing with the courtroom, quote, got distracted, unquote, completely forgot about Harold, left him in the holding cell uh, until after the building closed. So this guy was handcuffed in a cell, no food, no water, no toilet, uh, until the next morning when officials came in to transport new inmates in and they noticed, hey, we've got an inmate here in the detention center. So Kentucky earns its reputation as being totally fucking clueless about pretty much everything. 
Uh, over in Indiana, we continue with our series on puppy side. Uh, DeKalb County Sheriff's Office Deputy Courtney Fuller uh, left his dog Mojo in his locked car, where he again quote got distracted unquote and uh, Mojo baked to death. So that particular canine is dead. Of course, no charge is going to be filed because again, when police kill canines, it's just part of the job. If you, God forbid, happen to do it, you're going to face murder charges. Uh, over in Missouri, the Palmyra police chief, Eddie Bogue, is being investigated because he got into an argument with his elderly neighbor and decided to pull out a BB gun and shoot the neighbor in the shoulder. Uh, over in Ohio. Now, Ohio, gosh, have mercy. So y'all might remember from our podcast last week, we mentioned protesters in Washington, D.C. protesting the, uh, the health care bill and officers were basically picking these people up out of their wheelchairs and in at least one case just dropped the guy on the ground because they could. Uh, in Ohio, they don't even bother picking them up. They just dump them out of their wheelchairs. Like, you know, you remember the old uh, campaign commercials where Democrats show uh, Republicans wheeling grandma to the cliff and then throwing her over the edge? There's a video on Instagram where an officer basically does that. He's pushing this woman. I think it's a woman. You can't really tell because he pushes until the person like flies out of the chair onto the ground and then just walks away. So this was all part of a, a protest at Congress critter Rob Portman's office, and the officers that were there were manhandling multiple protesters and including dumping them on the ground. So again, as we talk about your rights to free expression, we always have that little asterisk there, does not apply if you happen to be black, as we learned in Louisiana, doesn't apply if you happen to be native, as we learned with the Dakota Access protests, also does not apply if you happen to have any kind of disability that requires you to be in a wheelchair. Uh, also in Ohio, the Toledo police have dismissed more than 100 different traffic tickets because they had an officer using a camera and radar gun ticketing people for speeding in a school zone. Come to find out that the people that were getting the tickets weren't actually in the school zone. What happened was one of the city council critters uh, happened to discover that he had gotten a ticket. His wife got a ticket a couple of days later. Both of them investigated and found out that they were basically using this to raise revenue and the people that were getting the tickets had actually done nothing wrong. So folks who had already paid will be getting issued refunds. Folks who have not paid yet will have their cases dismissed. But this is just another scenario where the police are using their power given to them by the state to instead focus on raising money. Uh, up in Michigan, Detroit Free Press has done a terrific expose on police misconduct and how bad officers manage to stay on the force and are protected by police chiefs, protected by unions, protected by politicians, and they continue to abuse and injure and kill members of the public just because they can. Uh, it's a very long expose. Um, I want you to read it all, though, so I'm going to go through it. The first, to give you a taste of what it's like, uh, the first piece is about an officer nicknamed RoboCop. Uh, so I, I don't want to spoil it. So I'm just going to give you that taste of it. Start with RoboCop and go on down the line. Uh, as we're also talking about exposés, uh, News Oklahoma has done a six-part piece on the fuckery that is in their prison system and how people stay in there longer than they're supposed to and it's a waste of money and the conditions suck. And again, it's another one of those things where it's just like a massive long expose. There's been such great long-form journalism on the abuses within our criminal justice system. I'm going to link it to you and hope you'll give it a read. 
Uh, also in Oklahoma, you might recall probably about three weeks ago, I think it was, I mentioned that it had been a good time if you're an officer who had killed someone because odds are you were not going to get convicted. That continued. Uh, a former police officer in Oklahoma named Shannon Kepler had killed his daughter's unarmed 19-year-old black boyfriend, and this is now the third mistrial. They have tried to convict this guy three separate times. The jury has hung every single time, and eventually at some point the DA is going to drop the charges. I just know how this works. Um, But yeah, if you're a cop and you kill somebody, never expect to get convicted unless you happen to be uh, in federal court, and even then Jeff Sessions will probably give you a sweetheart deal anyway. So that is in Oklahoma. Down in Texas, as we're talking about sweetheart deals, uh, Officer Brian Encinilla, that was the guy that helped pull Sandra Bland out of her car and then lied about it. So Encinilla was indicted by a grand jury for perjury. And the district attorney has decided, despite the grand jury's indictment, that they're not going to prosecute. They have come up with a deal where they will dismiss the charges as long as Encinilla agrees not to become a police officer in Texas again. Whoop the fucking do. Now, if any of my clients commit perjury, in all likelihood they're going to jail. But if you happen to have a badge and commit perjury, eh, we'll just tell you to change professions. Over in Colorado, the news there is kind of catching on that something is off. Uh, because they have a news story noting that six people were killed by police in Colorado in five days. Uh, They didn't go into detail too much about what each of those were. They said roughly four of them were justified for sure. Two of them was questionable, but it was still under investigation. But the, the funny part was one of the officers they quoted said that he couldn't tell if it was a pattern. You know, you kill six people in five days, there's no pattern there, even though we've got a pattern of police killing at least three people every single day, like clockwork, for going on five years now. Uh, But that was in Colorado. Over in Oregon, one of the attorneys there has noted that as part of a public records request to their police, uh, found out that as the Portland police were monitoring a protest and what they conveyed to the public was a protest, they were busy telling Homeland Security that there was a riot going on and trying to get these other agencies that were responding to treat it as such. Um, so that is part of the behind-the-scenes fuckery that takes place. That was up in Oregon. I uh, also got two general pieces of non-state-specific research Um, One of them was a story on terrorism-related deaths. So the idea was that someone did an expose on how likely it was that you were going to be killed by a terrorist. And one of the things that that came out in that data is that you're actually incredibly likely to be killed by police. You're roughly five times more likely to be killed by a police officer than you are by a terrorist of any kind. So I will link that story in the show notes. It's got a, a decent chart in it that you can go through and check your odds of being killed by any of many different types of deaths. Uh, Also, a really fascinating research piece that I want to encourage you to read. Now, it's not free, so I know it's going to be a turnoff for a lot of you, Uh, but I'm going to link to it. It's $10 to get it, but it is a study where they looked at 9,000 different municipalities and how they use court costs to fund the budget. And what these researchers found is that as the population of people of color in a city goes up, you're more likely to have the city rely on court funding to fund operations, using it as a revenue source, except where those same cities also had black representation on their city councils. 
So as black population goes up, you're abusing the system more. You're using court costs for general revenue instead of actually administering the justice system. And that only changes when you actually have diverse representation on the city councils. It's a really fascinating piece. Of course, you'll have a lot of people that will explain this away as mere, correla uh, mere correlation, not causation. But the fact of the matter is you hit a certain point where you see the same pattern over and over and over and over again. You have to recognize there's an underlying cause at play there, even if you can't necessarily pinpoint what it is. I'm going to pinpoint what it is and say it's got to do with racism and the fact that white politicians really give zero fucks about the black people that they exploit to take money by the court system. doesn't matter if they're Republicans or Democrats. It happens all over the place. I've seen it here in North Carolina. But... To have a study looking at that many different municipalities gathering that much data, uh, it truly is fascinating. So I'm going to give you that link. Again, it's $10 to read the whole story, uh, the study rather, um, but it's definitely worth a read because it's pretty fascinating. All right, so that covers the news from the past week. That is just the past week, y'all. I really want to get back to these 30-minute episodes. I don't know how it's going to happen with all this fuckery going on. Uh, but let's go ahead and dive into our Law 140 segment where we're going to talk about this car crash with Venus Williams. So if you were on Twitter a couple weeks back, odds are you saw the story of this car accident with Venus Williams as she was driving to, I think it was tennis practice. Um, but if you missed it, this clip from the news highlights the gist of it. And police say tennis star Venus Williams is at fault for a fatal crash. This police report says she cut in front of a car driving through an intersection in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. That car she cut in front, then slammed into hers. A passenger in that other car later died at the hospital. Venus says it was an unfortunate accident. She has not been charged. Now, of course, that sounds terrible. She cut in front of a car. The car slammed in front, uh, slammed into her and killed a passenger. And, of course, everyone believed it because there's an assumption that if police say something happened, that's actually true. But what happened this week was that surveillance video from a nearby store came out that showed the entire crash from start to finish. And turns out that wasn't what happened at all. Venus had entered the intersection on a green light. A car cut in front of her. As a result, she slowed down, so she was still in the intersection when the light changed, and the car that ended up where the passenger died T-boned her, hit the front of Venus's car because they weren't paying attention that there was a car still in the intersection. But this raised the question on Twitter, among a lot of people, of is there anything that Venus can do? You know, a lot of people say, I hope she sues the police department for defaming her. And the reality is that that's not really going to happen, unfortunately. So let's talk a little bit about defamation law with a particular focus on when you are defamed by the government. So when people talk about defamation, it comes in a couple different forms. So defamation that is spoken is called slander. And if it's written, it's called libel. So you'll have uh, lawyers will just put it under the umbrella of defamation. Uh, every now and then you'll see us talk about what's called libel slander, which is not an actual thing. Usually it's done to mock people who insist that something is defamatory when it's not. Um, but essentially it's a statement of fact that is false, that the person knew is false. They said it about you anyway. They published it to a third party. And as a result, you were damaged. Now, that's not the that's not the perfect 
uh, statement of it, but that's the gist. You know, maybe some other Law 140 will go into deeper detail on it. But essentially, you've got to have a statement of fact that is false, that's said to other people, uh, and it causes damages. Now, defamation also comes in a couple of different forms. You have what is called defamation per se, uh, which is something that tends to uh, malign you in your job or alleges that you've got some kind of loathsome disease or if you're a woman, claims that you are unchaste. And under most state laws, defamation per se, the malice in, in making that statement is presumed. It's presumed you did it with malicious intent. Uh, whereas otherwise, malice has to be proven. Uh, defamation per quad is just kind of regular plain Jane defamation in that case, where you've actually got to prove that the statement was defamatory. So this comes in with statements by police, defamation by the government. What happens when the government alleges you have done something wrong, but it turns out not to be justifiable by the facts? And what the courts have said is that really nothing. There's absolutely nothing you can do. Your SOL, kick rocks, have a nice day, sorry. Uh, and this really kind of came about in a United States Supreme Court decision called Paul v. Davis. Uh, this was from 1976. And it involved a guy named Edward Davis III who had been placed on a flyer in Louisville, Kentucky, that police had put together of what they had characterized as active shoplifters. His name and photo was on there, and they were putting these things up in, uh, in stores all around the area. And he was like, hey, this is kind of ridiculous. I don't, uh, I don't understand what's going on. I had only been arrested for a shoplifting charge. I was never actually convicted of it. And here you are putting my, uh, my name around all over the place saying that I'm this active shoplifter. So the guy filed suit. And essentially what the Supreme Court said was that there's nothing there. So he filed suit under uh, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. We've talked about this particular law before. Uh, this is the lawsuit that you sue people under for police brutality and a bunch of other things. But essentially that is the vehicle where, where the government violates your constitutional rights, you sue under this statute a lot of times to try and have that uh, heard. But to do that, you have to have a, an interest in liberty or in property or in life. One of those interests has to be deprived. Uh, you're being deprived of your rights to due process, essentially. And in this particular case... He claimed that he had a both a liberty interest and a property interest in his reputation in the community, and then that was taken away unlawfully by being designated as an active shoplifter without being convicted in a court of law. And what the court has said in the case of Paul v. Davis was that, quote, reputation alone apart from some more tangible interests such as employment, does not implicate any liberty or property interests sufficient to invoke the procedural protection of the Due Process Clause. Hence, to establish a claim under Section 1983 and the 14th Amendment, more must be involved than simply defamation by a state official. So what this came to be called is the notion of stigma plus defamation, stigma hyphen plus. So you had to have the stigma of the defamation plus some other government action taken in order for you to actually sue the government uh, as part of their efforts at defaming you. And this has been the law for a while. And then the Supreme Court in 1991 had a chance to revisit it 
and they basically doubled down and did it even more. So there was the case of Seagert v. Gilly, which was a 1991 case under the Rehnquist Court, where essentially this guy is a military doctor and was asking for a, um, what do you call him, a job performance uh, recommendation. Basically, he's trying to get a new position and asked his old uh, supervisors at an army hospital to give him a recommendation. And they gave a recommendation that was essentially trash. They said this guy uh, was absolutely terrible at his job. He was, quote, inept, unethical, and untrustworthy. Uh, Pretty damning stuff. And because of that, he did not get the job. So in his mind, he's like, hey, this qualifies as stigma plus. I have been defamed by having these particular things said about me. Plus, I've not gotten this particular employment because of it. And the Supreme Court basically said no. Nice try, but the inability to be employed is basically the same kind of harm that we had in the Paul V. Davis case. And your SOL, good luck, file suit in state court if you want to try something else, but you can't use the federal court system to do it. So that's essentially the state of the law as it exists today. If the government defames you, Uh, There's not a whole lot you can do because here's the irony, even though in Seagirt v. Gilly, the court said to file suit in state court, in a lot of state court actions, the uh, cases have been thrown out using the exact same basis, that you have to have this stigma plus defamation even among local and state actors. So you can't sue in federal court, you can't sue in state court, where can you sue? Basically nowhere at all. Uh, because that's the state of the law. Again, everyone in government protects everyone else. The judges will protect uh, government actors who defame you. So in this particular case with uh, Venus Williams, I almost called her Serena. I imagine her fans would be mighty upset by that. Uh, In this case with Venus Williams, she's had her reputation tarnished by the police, falsely stating she's committed a crime, but she has no real uh, recourse. There's nothing she can do to hold the government accountable for that other than pointing out that the situation is unjust and our laws don't allow any kind of recourse and that needs to be changed. Uh, If you want some more information on this notion of stigma plus defamation, uh, there is a law review article, and I know a lot of people judge law review articles as being verbose and not terribly useful, Uh, but Eric J. Mitnick from the University of California Davis Law Review uh, has a piece entitled Procedural Due Process and Reputational Harm, Uh, And it talks about this whole stigma plus uh, defamation situation because Mitnick raises a good point. It's different today than it was back in the Paul V. Davis days. You know, Paul V. Davis, police distribute some flyers in a neighborhood that you're an active shoplifter and that's as far as it goes. Today, we got the internet. We've got Google. Stuff stays forever. So that one news report from Florida that Venus Williams was responsible got basically copy and pasted among a bazillion other media outlets, and now that's going to be online forever. Now, the police have pointed out they were wrong, but the correction never travels as far as the initial scandal. So it's a really screwed up situation, but I'll link that law review article in the show notes for you to read. 
Folks, that's going to cover it for this particular episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm sorry that we're pushing an hour again. God willing, sooner rather than later, we'll be back to these 30-minute episodes. Uh, please follow us on Twitter, at Fiskamall. Comment on the website, Fiskamall.com. Join us on the Patreon account, patreon.com slash Fisk. Give us a rating, leave us a review, tell your friends about it. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>